Good morning, Sunday school. Good morning. How are we doing today? Good. Awesome. Let's jump right in. We are in Exodus chapter 1 and 2 today. So if you've got your Bibles, Exodus chapter 1 and 2. And we're kicking off another five-week series. So this is our fourth five-week series in the Old Testament and the first one that is out of Genesis. So we're, we jumped the Genesis hurdle and we're moving on to other things. So uh, timeline of what's happening next. Today is about uh, the birth of Moses. Next week is the burning bush, then the ten plagues, then the Passover and the Exodus, and then crossing the Red Sea. So if you look at your handout, down at the bottom of that handout, there's a timeline. kind of gives you an idea of where approximately we are in the history of the earth. Uh, and we're somewhere around 1500 B.C. at this point. So we've, we've covered, what is that, 4,000 to 1,500, 2,500 years of history so far. So more than a third of the history of the world we've already talked about, and that was Genesis, which is kind of amazing. Now, Moses' life, one of the reasons I like Moses, he was a very mathematical guy. The Bible divides his life up into three 40-year periods. Three 40-year periods. That's your first blank at the bottom of your handouts. I'll help you out since we're getting started this morning. Three 40-year periods, and I put it up on the board over here. So today, we're looking at his birth all the way through age 40, which sounds like a lot, but it's only two chapters, right? And the first couple verses of Exodus actually cover about 150 or 200 years, and they don't even, the author doesn't even tell you, hey, we just skipped past 150 years. You just kind of have to figure it out. So next week, we're going to talk about the burning bush, and that happens when Moses is about 80 years old. So we just kind of skipped 40 years at, in Midian where he's just hanging out working hard. And then uh, the following three weeks are about that last 40-year period of his life. So three 40-year periods. So we're in Exodus chapter 1. We ready? Here we go. Verse 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. So think back six weeks ago when we finished up the story of Jacob. The last part of the story of Jacob and Joseph was... They came into Egypt. Everybody's happy. Joseph is in power. The king of Egypt just lavishes love on them. He's given them land. He gives them a place to grow. Everything's positive. So we list the sons here, Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun and Benjamin and Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. Aren't you glad you didn't have to read through that, right? There we go. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. Okay, so the baton, the proverbial baton, is being passed here. The next generation has it. Verse 7, But the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now, I don't know how you would characterize that statement, but it can be characterized several ways, right? There was no birth control in play here. We'll just leave it at that. They had lots and lots and lots and lots of kids. If you do the, the growth rate from when they walked into Egypt with 70 people to when they walked out a couple hundred years later with a little over 2 million people, ladies, if you had lived during this period, you would have averaged a child about every four years during your adult life. Come on now. There we go. This is how you go from 70 to 2 million. This is a lot of kids. A lot of kids. A lot of kids. And then when you, you think you're, no, we're not done yet. Yep. Because that, as we read through the story today, just 
keep in the back of your mind how often they grew exceedingly and they multiplied because it's over and over and over. And I don't know how big God's multiplication table is, but when he says you've multiplied, probably multiplied quite a bit. So, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Dun, dun, dun. Okay? Verse 9. He said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more mighty, are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly. What does your translation say right there? Wisely. Anybody else? It's a goofy Hebrew word. It means wisely in order to deceive. I read that and I was like, wisely? How can you be wise if you're deceiving? Well, you can be shrewd, right? You can be tricky. And that's what, that's what the king is going after. That was pretty impressive with one hand, wasn't it? You like that? <clears throat> Lest they multiply, which he's apparently slow because they've already multiplied, right? And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. So what's his plan? Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. This word to afflict, um, it is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, and, and I'm sorry, we're going to get real graphic real quick. It is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the rape of a woman. And the word is translated humble at different places, and it is an atrociously awful word. The idea is that we're going to do everything we can to oppress and to push down and to restrict and to harm this group of people, everything that we can. And this is a man that's got the resources to do it. This is the king of Egypt. Most scholars believe that this is the period where the upper and the lower dynasties of Egypt converged into one. This was a man with more power than any of the previous Egyptian kings. So he's got the power to do this. So what does he do? <clears throat> Verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. We'll pause here real quick. When you, when you look at Egyptian hieroglyphics, you will see all these people working. And you will see sometimes a man sitting down with a big stick in his hand, raised up. These are the taskmasters. These are the people that are coming behind, literally beating the children of Israel into forced labor. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities. Pitom. Funny. You know what the name Pitom means? City of justice. It's like, well, maybe city of injustice, perhaps, but not quite city of justice. And Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. <laughs> and you're like, Jim, why are you laughing? Because that's a God thing. Because when man does everything he can do to afflict and to oppress and to re reject and deny what God has ordained is going to happen, what God wants to happen still happens. The pattern that we learned in Genesis chapter 1, and God said it, and it was so. And God said it, and it was so, is still true in Exodus. And I love the fact that we don't get out of the first chapter and we still see that the word of God is going to come to pass. He is establishing a pattern of truthfulness with his word. The more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor or harshness or severity or cruelty, and they made their lives bitter. Now I want you to remember this word bitter. Because when Terry Bolden comes in a couple weeks and he talks about the Passover, he talks about the tastes of the foods in the Passover, there's a reason it's not supposed to taste good. 
because it's going to remind them of this bitter slavery that they were in. There's a reason God connects all these dots. He made them, their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, cement, and brick, and tile, and all manner of service in the field. All their service which they made them, was, which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of, of whom the name of one was Shifra. You know what her name means? Fair. Her name means fair. And the name of the other was Puah. Yes, I listened to the, definite, the pronunciation. That is how you say it. Puah. It's like, really? It's kind of cool. Her name means splendid. And you go, midwives. So what, what's the midwife? Well, the midwife's a lady that comes along and helps you deliver your child when it's time for you to deliver your child. And, and in this day and time, the women who served as midwives typically did not have children of their own. This is why they were available at the drop of a hat to go and serve as a midwife, right? Because they could drop really kind of nothing, right? And just go and serve. And he said to them, this is the king of Egypt saying to them, now... Please understand, the children of Israel at this point are probably already in the thousands or tens of thousands, maybe in the, in the low hundreds of thousands. They probably had more than just two midwives. Right, we've already established the fact that they're cranking out babies like nobody's business. This, I, I read one commentary that said these are probably the presidents of the local midwives association club. Okay? So these are the two that had influence and power over the other midwives. And he said to them, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools. Interesting Hebrew word here. It's the same word used for potter's wheel in Isaiah. That's, I, not one commentary dared touch this with a 10-foot pole. They were all like, we're just assuming that this was some special device. And I would, I'm not even going to read anymore. Okay. See them on the birth stools. If it is a son, then you shall kill him. Whoa. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God. There it is, right there. This is why it is critical. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but save the male children alive. And there's a principle at play here, is that when the state directly contradicts God's law, that is where our obedience to the state ends. That's it. If we get somebody in power that says it is illegal to stand up and teach the Bible as God says it ought to be taught, you know what we're going to do? We're going to teach the Bible. And if we end up doing it from jail, we'll end up doing it from jail. And you know what? God will still be true. And he will still be right. And it will still be just. And we will do it from jail. And he will somehow make it work. Because that's what he does. That's just what he does. I don't know how it works. I don't know how he can have the king of Egypt afflict his people for hundreds of years and they grow to the millions. I don't know. That's what he does, though. Verse 18, So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. Well, duh, they're cranking out babies like crazy, right? For they are lively. What's your translation say? Vigorous, there you go. They're vigorous. When we get to this point, they give birth before the midwives come to them, which very possibly could sort of kind of be true, right? So what does he say? Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. Again, this multiplied. 
So if you're keeping track with the multiplied, we've got lots of multiplied. And this is how math works. When you multiply something, it gets bigger very quickly. When you multiply it again, it gets bigger even faster. It's exponential growth. It's those curved lines. That's your math part for the day. There you go. Now, verse 21 is a beautiful verse. And it was so because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. And that's kind of cool. Because God didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. He doesn't owe us anything for our obedience. He owes us absolutely nothing. But he provided households for them. It is a glorious display of God's just unbelievable love pouring out on these women. And I love it. It's stuck here right in the middle of all this affliction and all this pain and all this hurt and all this anger is beauty from service to God. Now, most of you know that I like to find Jesus in all kinds of places, right? Jesus is all throughout the Bible. He's not just the lamb that was slain. Yeah, he's, he's all throughout the Bible. How many of you ever heard of Tim Keller? Anybody know who Tim Keller is? Anybody? Really? You guys got to read more, okay? Yeah, thank you, Lori. Okay. Tim Keller wrote something called True and Better. I'm going to read it for you real quick. Jesus, see, because we read the Bible, and we think, we think that the Bible's about us, right? We think that we read the Bible, and we see ourselves in the story of the Bible. We see the story of David and Goliath, and go, we're David, right? We're raging against the machine and the man. We're not David. More than likely, we're Goliath, right? Raging against God and what his plans are. But this is what Tim Keller wrote. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the world, not knowing where he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was, who was not just offered up by his father on the mountain, but was truly sacrificed for us, while God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. You think he shows up in the Old Testament just a little bit? All over. The whole Bible is about him. I'm not done. I got more. Jesus is the true and better Job. He's the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. That's right. He is. That's what he does. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, said, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not about us, guys. The Bible is about Jesus. And when I read the story of these two Hebrew midwives, I see that Jesus is the true and better midwife because he delivered his people. 
not just from their earthly self, but their spiritual bondage. You see this? Jesus is all through the Bible. Don't miss him. If you read through a chapter of the Bible and you go, I don't know where Jesus was, go back. You didn't get it. It's, it's in there. It's in there. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's love. So verse 22, they wrote, he's kind of a stubborn guy. You'll notice this as we go through. I thought that was funny, but okay. That's not. You haven't seen the Ten Commandments, have you? All right. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Pharaoh commanded who? Who does that include? It includes the Egyptians, doesn't it? Do you know that? See, everybody thinks God's an awful God because he killed the Egyptians' sons too. Pharaoh did it to his own people, voluntarily, to his own people. You thought Caesar was bad in the New Testament, right? Kill everybody under the age of two. Pharaoh did it to his own people. Think about that. What would you think of our government if they issued a decree saying every male child had to die? What would you think? You'd be thinking Canada looks pretty good, right? Something different. Uh, this is unbelievably appalling. This is the mindset that this man is in. So we come to Exodus chapter 2. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. Now, <clears throat> when we read through the Old Testament, please understand that there are tribes of people. And when I say tribes, I mean tens of thousands at this point, millions of people in these tribes later on. So when it says a son of Levi and a daughter of Levi, it doesn't mean a brother and a sister. It means like a ninth cousin and a tenth cousin. Okay? Distant, this is no problem genetically. We're not going to have some um, different children here. Okay? This is, everything's fine. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was a beautiful child, and she hid him three months. Uh, the Jewish rabbis <clears throat> were very fond of writing in uh, uh, stories that they perceived to be true about the accounts in the Bible. And one of the stories, one of the fables or legends that the rabbis tell is that Moses, when he was born, this is Moses, by the way, in case you hadn't figured that out. Um, Moses, when he was born, he didn't cry the day of his birth. He didn't cry at all. And when his, wife, when his mom uh, delivered him, the room shined with the radiance of the sun. And when he was one day old, he was talking and walking on his own, and he was eating solid food. Aren't you glad that we have something that's a little more sure than that? God wrote it down. <laughs> I'm so glad he did, because we don't get confused when he writes things down. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and she saw that he was a beautiful child. She hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it by the reeds in the river's bank. Now, what did Pharaoh command? You throw your boys in the what? In the river, probably the Nile River. What does mama do? Technically, she obeyed. <laughs> but she did everything she could, right? She did everything she could. Can you imagine? She thinks this thing. Knowing that you're going to put your son in this and cast him out.
mountain. And there's, a, there's a slow process to cover this with pitch. She would have had to boil the pitch so it would seep in all the cracks and seal it off. And she's making this. It's probably the most precious thing she ever made in her life. And she goes down to the river. She puts it in the bank. But her daughter, praise God for good relatives, verse 4, and his sister, and the Bible doesn't tell you this, but this is Miriam, stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Thank God for nosy older sisters. If you've got a nosy older sister, that's a good thing. Verse 5, Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. When she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. So what's the first thing Moses does when we see him in the Bible? He cries. There's a, a bit of foreshadowing here, okay? Because he, he pulls this stunt again several times in his life, okay? I, I don't think this is on accident. The first time, the first thing that comes out of Moses' mouth is crying because he does it again. And I, I, I don't want to throw stones at Moses here, but I, I can't imagine God showing up to me later on in my life at a burning bush and this voice speaking to me, telling me I'm going to go fight the biggest nation in the world and bring all of his several million people out. I'm going to cry. I might wet myself too, but I'm going to cry. Okay? This is going to be a problem for me. So I'm going to cut him some slack. But the first thing he did was he cried. Verse 7, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? What a beautifully timed word here. I mean, this is just stunning timing. Right? But I know somebody. She can nurse him for you. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. She got paid to take care of her own kid. Ladies, how cool would that be, right? <laughs> Y'all, sign me up for that plan. Right? I don't really think you want that plan. but. And as the child grew, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So this lady had to give her son away twice. Twice. <laughs> Moses' mom's name is not mentioned here. It's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, but she's an incredible woman. I mean, she's really an incredible woman. The, the women are the stars of, of Exodus 1 and 2, by the way, in case you're wondering. The guys, we're, we're lousy in this. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses. Anybody know what Moses means? Drawn, D-R-A-W-N. I slur it sometimes because I'm from the south. But drawn, which I think is a beautiful word because what does the Pharaoh's uh, handmaidens draw Moses out of the water, right? God uses Moses to draw his people out of Egypt, right? Moses draws the letters of the Pentateuch for us. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture word. Because I drew him out of the water. And Moses was learned... I'm sorry, drew him out of the water. Now, one of the things that I am incredibly thankful for are sermons in the New Testament. There are several sermons in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Acts. Um, there's a guy named Stephen who got treated very, very poorly in Acts chapter 6, 7, and I think 8. Somebody might want to check on that. But he's brought before the council because he believes in Jesus. And Stephen lights into them. Ain't no preacher ever preached like this guy did in Acts chapter 7. 
And Stephen goes on to just preach through the entire Old Testament and show how the whole stinking thing points to Jesus. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And in the smack dab middle of Acts chapter 7, we get all of this commentary about the life of Moses. All of this commentary about the life of Moses. Because Moses gets named, and then verse 11, it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. Now, if you had to guess how old Moses was there, how old would you guess? When he was grown, I'd say 20, right? 18, 20 maybe. Stephen tells us he's 40. What happened between 0 and 40? We just kind of went from 0 to 40. We don't, we don't know. Stephen gives us an, an answer. He says in Acts 7, 22, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, Egypt was the most, technical, was the most um, academically advanced society on the planet at this point. So if he's learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, you think he had a pretty good school? GPS, Macaulay, and Baylor got nothing on that. Okay. This was the best of the best of the best. Everything was the best. The son of Pharaoh. You're going to make sure that your kid gets the best education possible. So he's got the best. So keep that in your mind. Verse 11. He's 40 years old. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. What does this almost imply to you? When you read that, what, what, what does that sound like? Does it sound like he's done this before? Because I don't get that feeling. I don't get the feeling that he's really ever been concerned. And maybe I'm just making something up. But I don't get the feeling that this has been a pattern in his life at this point. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Now, one of the great things about Greek is that there's like a billion Greek words in the New Testament. It's absolutely amazing. There's a word for every single friggin' thing, okay? It's awful for our pastors to have to learn Greek because there's so many vocabulary words. Hebrew, on the other hand, has like a third of the words, and that's great for learning Hebrew. The problem is knowing exactly what the word meant because it has fewer words, they have far more meanings. This word for beating you down can mean anything from to fight club going off on Stuart here to I'm in the process of killing you. Very wide range of meaning, right? We're kind of going, so which does it mean here? Well, I'm thankful for Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, right? Because Stephen tells us something in Acts chapter 7 we'll get to in just a second. Verse 11, so he, Moses, I'm sorry, verse 12, so he, Moses, looked this way and that way. He's sneaky. He's looking around, make sure nobody's looking. Now, what's the only time that you look around and make sure nobody's looking? Or you're doing something wrong? So when I read Exodus chapter 2, I go into it thinking, Moses, he is, he is messing up here. He is messing up here. And he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Because there's lots of sand. I mean, they're in Egypt, right? Which is not a problem. But Acts chapter 7, Stephen says that Moses is fully justified in what he did. Because he saved the Hebrew's life because the Egyptian was going to kill him. So here's my question for you. You walk into your house, guys, and there's a man beaten on your wife. What's going to happen to that man? He's going to die. Is it going to take him a long time to die? Yes. <laughs> I knew there'd be one Pulp Fiction fan in here. That's right. <laughs> it's probably going to take him a long time to die. No, it's not. You're going to go off on his head. 
That's what's going to happen. Now, what's the judge going to say? What's a, judge, what's a good judge going to say? Justified. Right? Because he was about to kill her. So interceding with lethal force to prevent a murder is justified. Stephen tells us that it's justified. We don't get that commentary in the Old Testament. And I thank Jesus that there's more than one place that things are described in the Bible. So we will have a correct interpretation and understanding of things. This, for me, was a, wow, I always heard that Moses was wrong in killing this guy. Stephen didn't think so. And Jesus stood up clapping when Stephen went, Stephen went to heaven. So I'm guessing that was a heck of a sermon and a really cool way to go out. I'm just saying. Verse 13, and when he went out the second day, behold, this is why I think it wasn't a pattern with him, because this is like the second time he's going out. Behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and judge over us? Which, I mean, Pharaoh did, but okay. Um, Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses didn't do a good job of looking around as he thought he did. (laughs) Okay. So Moses better not trust his eye. So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of the matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now, how many of you have struggled to wrap your head around the concept that God allowed his children to be in captivity for hundreds of years? My hand is up. This, to me, is a very hard thing to get. The idea that God is okay with waiting until the right time, even if his people are suffering, even if his people are dying. He will wait until the right time. This time, right there in the story, was not the right time for deliverance because the Egyptians weren't bad enough yet. The Israelites weren't big enough yet. And Moses wasn't bold enough yet. That'll almost preach, wouldn't it? I better not let Gary hear that. It's too alliterative for him. He'll turn that into a sermon, won't he? He's made that up on the spot, by the way. Yeah, they were, they were not ready. It was not the right time. Despite the fact that all this bad is going on, does God still know about it? Yeah, God still knows about it. So when we go through our lives and we go, Oh, my goodness, the sky is falling. Well, it ain't as bad as the, as the Israelites had it. I promise you that, right? It's, it's really probably not. But God knows, and it may just not be the right time for deliverance. So what does Moses do? He goes to Midian. So where's Midian? It's not in Egypt. That's all you need to worry about. Verse 16. Now, the priest of Midian, there's a big debate in biblical, theology, biblical uh, geography about where exactly Midian is, whether it's like, 50 miles this direction or 60 miles this direction. And I'm going, it don't matter, guys. It ain't Egypt. Okay, he ran away. Verse 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water. And they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped and watered their flock. So what do we see a pattern in Moses' life so far? He defends the innocent, right? He sticks his nose in and he wants to get involved and do something about it. Which, what kind of guy do you think you would need to go rescue, say, two million people? Somebody who's probably okay with sticking their nose in somebody else's business and doing something about it. So God's giving him opportunities to do this. He's growing him here. Verse 18, when they came to Ruel, Ruel means a friend of God. This was Jethro's father. 
for those of you that keep up with the lineages, their father, and he said, how is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hands of the shepherds. Oh, you know it's coming. He looked like an Egyptian. He talked like an Egyptian. He probably walked like an Egyptian. That's right. There it was. There we go. And he also drew out enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? <laughs> it's like, come on, girls, pay attention here. This is a good one, all right? He's looking after you. Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man because Moses didn't have a home. <laughs> this is going to work out all right for Moses. And he, Ruel, gave Zipporah, which means a bird, his daughter to Moses. Now, have y'all seen this uh, nail shop on Hickson Pike? Is it a nail shop or is it a hair shop? Zipporah's nails. We're going to get to Zipporah later on in the Old Testament. That's a really, really badly, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. He gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses. And now Moses, he's got a home, he's got a wife. Like, Man, this running away thing worked out pretty well. And she bore him a son, so now he's got a kid. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now, how many daughters did this man have? How many sons did this man have? We don't know. But what are always listed? You're always listed, your boys. And here comes a guy that's ready to defend one of his daughters. What do you think this man's going to do with Moses? He's going to put him to work. See, everybody thinks that Moses was hanging out in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering around, doing nothing. He was working, is what he was doing. He had seven women to support. Moses was working. <laughs> okay? I don't know. These women may not have been attracted because the shepherd's trying to get rid of them. I, what, right? I did, I'm, not, I'm not reading into Scripture. I'm just guessing here. Okay? So a lot of people think that the years in Midian were a waiting time for Moses and said they were working years. They were working years. So verse 23, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. <laughs> you know who wins in the end? God. Every single time. You oppose him, you lose. It's just a matter of time. Just a matter of time. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. He hadn't forgotten about it. He's just focusing on it now. The Bible uses the term remember to focus on things. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. Guess what? Ding, ding, ding. It is time. We're going to start acting. Now God's been working this whole time. Right? He's been working in the life of Moses. He's trying to get this guy ready to go do this unbelievable thing that Cecil DeMille portrays, you know, 3,500 years later, right? Strikes the rod out, and the water's split, and everything's great, and they get Oscars galore, and it's fantastic, right? You guys don't know your directors. Okay. We'll go back and review that later. So, what's the point of this story? Well, the point of the story, for one, for me, this is my lesson that I learned this week, is the Bible can be easily misunderstood, because I went into this lesson going, Moses was a murderer, and he really wasn't. He was a defender, and that's good. I'm, I'm happier with that kind of Moses. It's easier Moses to teach. Number two, seemingly inconsequential people can have tremendous impacts. Those two ladies that have the goofy names, you know what? If they hadn't done what they did, it wouldn't be the five books of Moses. It'd be the five books of somebody else. That's right. It'd be somebody else. God would have used somebody else. But 
Moses owes a lot to them. A lot. See, when he gets to heaven, he's like, give him a high five. Like, Thanks, guys. Appreciate you. And then number three, God is aware and is always working. He is always, 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 always working. Even though it does look like he's not, he's always working. So what do I do with that? Well, for me, compare line upon line every time. Sounds like something Jesse Jackson would say, doesn't it? Line upon line every time. If the glove doesn't fit, I quit. Number two, take the time to study the lesser-known character stories in Scripture. Some of you have been with me a couple times now and have heard me gone through the, uh, uh, the little-known Bible characters, right? Remember that series? I've actually done it twice. These two ladies are totally going to be in the next version. Absolutely, they're going to be in there. I'm excited about that. And then number three, never give up on, give up on God or his timing because he knows what he's doing. He's not dilly-dallying around. He's not asleep. He's not in the bathroom. He knows what he's doing every single time. I love this story. I had a blast with this story this week. God beat the crap out of me this week over this story, but I had a blast with it. So, uh, time to do our prayer requests. You've got a piece of paper at your table. Make sure everybody's name who was at the table or is at the table or is stranded by themselves, not at a table, uh, is on the piece of paper at some point. Write down your prayer requests, and we'll be out of here in about five minutes to go worship Jesus. Thanks for coming, guys.